Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Go and read together from the verse number 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, the verse number 18, the Word of God says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thy son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did, as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. May God be pleased to bless his word uh, to your hearts today. We are in the middle of a series of studies on the ethics of the family. Again, I remind you, it's a study, a broader study, uh, going back to last year, of ethics arising from the creation ordinances, Sabbath, family, and affairs of work and state, those things that arise in God's Word prior to the fall, those things that abide and are relevant upon all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, in all ages. And so we're looking at that broader study, and uh, then more, more recently we've been in the narrower fear of the ethics of family life. And today I want to really just hopefully uh, help you to think through this in an interesting way as we think about the ethics in the Jewish practices at the time of Christ's birth. Think about ethics as we see them in the life of Joseph. Again, of course, we're often reading these passages at this time of the year. People read them, they hear them read. And one area they don't think about very much is how these portions give us an insight into God's will for families, even revealed through this man, Joseph. He is described in verse number 19 as a just man. Joseph, her husband, being a just man. Now, we who are, again, reformed believers, we are very quick to read the word just or righteous and insert into that word legal terms. And it is a legal definition. A righteous man. But we, of course, understanding the doctrine of justification, tend to see just men as those who have been justified freely by God's grace, receiving a righteousness not their own. But being fair to the text, the word just is generally used in the Old Testament, not in that imputation sense, but rather in the moral sense that the person is a just, upstanding man or woman of integrity. Now, we know theologically those two things can't be divided. Those who are morally upright 
are only morally upright because of regeneration. And those who are regenerate trust in God. And therefore they're also legally righteous. You can't divide the two. You cannot be truly morally righteous without first and foremost being legally righteous. They must come together. But being fair to the language, we should still see that this idea of being a just man often refers to someone's walking with God and their integrity. You go back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and you'll see the reference to Noah. And of course, you know the days in which Noah lived, days of profound uh, wickedness. The world is, is rebelling against God's. And you've got verse number 9 of Genesis chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Again, clearly the language there is describing Noah's walk with God in distinction from the wickedness of the world. Verse number 11, the earth also is corrupt before God. All flesh, verse 12, had corrupted his way upon the earth. But not Noah. He's a just man. Again, he's only just because of the work of God in the rebirth. He's got a new heart. He's got a new heart. He's able to walk in God's ways. But as such, he walks with God's. Now, keeping those things in mind, Noah, a just man, Noah walked with God. Turn across then to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. And you'll see here again the uh, combining of these terms. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20 and the verse number 7. Where it says here, The just man walketh in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Again, of course, a second point, making the reference to the blessing of family under a just man. But the word just there used in verse number 7 is describing the walking in integrity of a person. Clearly, one can only do so because they've got a new heart. Therefore, they trust in God. They're just legally because of Christ's righteousness. But that righteous justification they enjoy is also leading into a righteous walk. The just man walketh in his integrity, upright, mortal, in righteousness. And the same term, believe it or not, is actually also used by Paul in the New Testament. Again, Paul, the great defender of justification by faith alone. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, turn across to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he takes this idea of a righteous man, same idea. And by the way, the word that's used here in verse number 9, a righteous man, it's one word in the original, the same one word used to describe Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. So Joseph, Matthew 1, a just man. Here, 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Can we... We read that and we think, well, Paul must be referring to those who are legally righteous in Christ. But in the context, I don't think it's right. Look at how it continues. The law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners. And so it goes on to list those who are guilty of great moral defilement. And the righteous man is not like the lawless man, the ungodly man. He's not like that. And the text is not suggesting the law has no relevance to a righteous man. Rather, the point is the law brings judgment and conviction upon those who break the law, but the righteous man's walking in the law. 
And so the law for him is a guide, but it doesn't, doesn't bring conviction in the same way it will bring to the sinner and the ungodly described in verse number 9 of that text. I'm just telling you again that when it describes Joseph, again back to Matthew chapter 1, it describes Joseph as a just man. It's describing a man whose ethics are controlled by the law of God. That's the point. Remember, we're looking at this matter of ethics. What are our ethics? They are the standards that control our conduct, how we live. Well, our external living is controlled by those things that are our convictions, our ethical convictions, our ethical standards. And Joseph's standards, well, they are the very words of God. He's a just man walking in obedience to the ways of the Lord. And as such, we then see interesting things regarding his testimony. How does a just man live in his family? How does the word of God govern Joseph in his dealings? And so I have three things I want just to, to leave with you again today regarding Joseph and of ethics. First of all, look, look at Joseph and morality. We learn a lot from Joseph regarding the dignity and the purity of marriage. This is right exactly what we're dealing with, isn't it? In our present studies, we've spent some time looking at marriage. Uh, we've looked at the attack upon marriage and the present LGBT confusion. Uh, but Joseph shows us a man committed to the dignity and the purity of marriage. Verse number 19 again. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Here we've got to really understand this in light of the culture at that time. There are some cultural things here in terms of the words that are used. The word husband is used because it is a very appropriate translation of the Greek word aner, which is the word used in verse number 19. It has the idea of an adult male. Now, it can refer to a husband in the sense of one who is married. It can also refer to an, an older man, uh, not an adolescent, but an adult male. And so this word honor is used here uh, regarding uh, Joseph as a man. But it's a, it refers to Joseph, her, that is Mary's husband. Now, what is being seen here is that at that time, there was a contractual arrangement, often between families, where the man was bound to marry this young woman, Mary. We might think in terms similar, it's not the same, but in a similar way, we may think of the uh, contract of engagement. Now, we know they're not married as we understand it for a couple of things. Turn across to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. In the verse... Number 27 of Luke, again, you may keep your finger in Matthew. We're going to go back and forth between Matthew and Luke this morning. But Luke chapter 1, here you have the description. The Gabriel was sent, verse number 26, verse 27 then, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. So you've got the language here of one espoused to another and still a virgin. And then verse number 34, Mary says this, then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? So the Bible is very, very clear. Now, we should not think of Mary and Joseph as married in the way that we might understand that. Those who are covenanted together and have consummated that covenant in terms of their relations. That's not what's in view here. This is prior to that. This is a contractual arrangement leading up to marriage. 
And so back in Matthew, Joseph's concern is that Mary's, uh, now that Mary's expecting, that that has in some way violated the engagement. There's a breaking of that contract. You see, what we see is a young Jewish couple, and they're acting justly, and Joseph is concerned regarding Mary's morality prior to marriage. Now, he's, he's wrong, and he's corrected. His thinking's wrong. Mary has done nothing untoward, and he is told, no, go ahead and marry her as you planned. But what you see here, do you not see this? Don't you see the morality of God's will governing the thinking of this just man? He's a just man, and what's he doing? He's aiming at marriage. His focus, his goal is, I am going to marry this young woman. We're not going to cohabitate. We're not going to be together until we're married. There are things that govern our ethics. The Word of God is governing this just man's ethical decisions. He's not living according to his own pleasure and his own desires. He's governed by something outside himself. And the world today needs to hear this. The world today thinks, if it feels right, do it. And whatever we feel or how we feel, we're going to express that carelessly without any thought. But he's a just man described as just in the word of God. And he's governed and controlled by the ethics of God's word. He's aiming towards marriage. Maintaining the purity of his life and his to-be wife's life prior to marriage. It's just an interesting example. That's all I'm saying. It's an example. But it is surely an example that evokes much thought and consideration. Again, those of us who have young people, we must continually bring these things before our young people's attention. That this world is pushing our young people in a way that's against just people against the morality of God's Word, and telling our young people the Bible's old-fashioned and morality's old-fashioned. And so they'll even say, that they'll look at this portion and say, well, that's just Jewish thought. But remember, the Word of God that shows itself in Jewish morality is a morality grounded in creation. And it's a morality in creation, in Jewish thought, that is then repeated in the language of the New Testament. There is no variation from this. Marriage is a place for a man and a woman to know relationships together. That's the only context. And Joseph is showing that here in his example. And anything apart from that is sin. And Joseph understands that. And he's deeply concerned for the morality and purity of marriage. Well, the second thing to note just today, and we're looking at this very generally, is the example of Joseph and authority. Authority. Please turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Why does Joseph act in light of the instruction that they receive? Luke chapter 2. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Part of the taxing process was what we might term a census, an attempt to count and to see, well, who lives in this area and what must they owe. And so you've got there verse number four. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. 
Okay, so there you see this situation developing. Joseph is living as a just man under Roman authority. A challenging situation. Undoubtedly, we see in the gospel narrative that the Jewish people at that time, they were not happy under, Jewish, or under Roman rule. There are questions asked all the time. What about this tax? Or what about this coin with Caesar's image? How do we interact with Caesar as those who are under God, as Jewish people? What do we do with Caesar? Of course, the Lord says to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but here we see an example of a just man in Luke chapter 2 that he's submissive to the state even though he has seemingly good reasons to disobey the state. His wife's great with child. He could say to himself, well, my, family, my family's circumstances make it more important that I stay put rather than taking the risk of traveling to obey the authority of the state at this time an ungodly authority, and yet we find him being submissive to the state. Well, let me take you back, flashback time here, in your mind to this particular uh, slide where Mr. Uh, Jim Beale fixed my per graphic. Uh, theology is right, but my graphic wasn't very good, and Jim helped me with this graphic. What Joseph shows us here is not, and please understand this, because this can be misunderstood, he is not showing us that the family exists under the state, that the state has rights to govern the family in its every way, no more than the state is over the church. But rather what we see in the areas of authority is that there are these three spheres of human authority and they exist interdependently, but yet with a sense of independence. And so you'll see the overlapping circles there, that there are some times when these things will overlap. And the state will have rights to indeed bring some government over the family. But there are times when the family must resist the state. And so you get these complex situations in the scriptures. But I'm showing you here that at this point in time, we find Joseph not as a rebellious Jew, but as a godly man living under submission to an ungodly authority and leading his family in that regard. Just interesting, the applications will vary. We've got to think through our own circumstances at different times. I'm just saying here, he's a just man who's showing what it is to exercise submission to the state in a particular time in his life. Okay, Joseph and morality. We've seen Joseph and his views of marriage, Joseph and authority. And thirdly, Joseph and what we might term complementarity. What's that term? It's not just me getting my ITY endings that's part of it, uh, but it is a term that is often used, uh, again, has been more recently uh, in broader evangelical thoughts. It's the idea known as complementarianism as opposed to egalitarianism. And it's a concept, an idea of how we understand God's will for marriage in particular. It doesn't just refer to that. It's often also used with regards to men and women in the church. And it has the idea uh, that complementarianism teaches that men and women have different but complementary roles, hence complementarianism. But the roles are different, 
And a man's role is different in the home, in the church, uh, than the woman's. But they complement each other. Different responsibilities and marriage and family life. Not egalitarian, the idea that well, we're all equal. We all have the same role, the same responsibilities. The Bible doesn't teach that. And in Joseph's example here, there's a tremendous weight of testimony regarding God's will for man to lead the home. And you see it in various ways. First of all, turn back to Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy is very important. Matthew chapter 1, and verse number 16 shows us that the Lord is born under the headship of Joseph. The Bible's very clear. You go to Luke's genealogy, and it talks about the Joseph. Uh, Joseph was supposed to be of Joseph. But here you have in Matthew chapter 1, 16, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is Joseph's genealogy. Even though Jesus is not biologically Joseph's son, Jesus is under Joseph's headship. And that was vitally important in Jewish thought, because that's God's thought. The families exist under the headship of the husband and the father. That's where the headship exists. So we're seeing it here in the genealogy of Matthew. We also see it in the instruction, Matthew chapter 1, verse number 21. Verse 20 says this, And while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And that was, the again, the qualification. Joseph, do not worry. Take her as your wife. She is pure. But verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou, singular pronoun, Thou, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. It was Joseph that had the legal rights and the responsibility to give the name to his son. And he's instructed to do so by the Lord. Again, it's an example. It's just an example of God confirming male headship in the home. Those things that we've been considering in recent weeks. It's like God is saying, well... I've taught it in the principles of my word, and here's a clear pattern. Joseph, you will name the son, and he's to name him Jesus. We also find Joseph leading in obedience. Go across to Luke chapter 21 now, please. Luke 21. Oh, sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Sorry. Luke 2, verse 21. You've got the verse 21, and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus. Now, that, of course, referring back to Matthew chapter 1 was the action of Joseph. He named the Lord Jesus. And then verse 22, and when the days of her, that is Mary's purification, according to the law, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, my, my suggestion here is, that whilst there is the idea of both parents involved, it is Joseph that has taken the lead. An implication, of course, he's the one that names the child in verse number 21. Now, Mary's mentioned, of course. Her purification has come to pass, so they come together. 
But the thought is, I believe, of Joseph leading the family when it comes to their obedience to the ways of God. And of course, that corresponds with what we see in the Old Testament. We have the idea of the father being responsible for the family dynamic. You think of Joshua. Joshua 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to follow idols. We're not going to violate God's word. We're going to keep God's word. You think of the Sabbath principle, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. And it goes through all the various parts of the home that were all sort of keep the family. Sons and daughters, servants, all of them were all to keep the Sabbath day under the direction of the godly father, the godly husband. Just confirming, Joseph is confirming here male authority. You see that in one other way, in his direction. Go back to Matthew once more. Just one last portion. Matthew chapter 2. And here, of course, we're looking at the events regarding the, the wise men coming from the east, the threats upon the Lord's life. And look what it says in verse number 13. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream. So why is that significant? Well, at other times, angels appear to husband and wife. You think of the time around Manoah and the birth of Gideon. But here you've got the angel appearing to Joseph in a dream, telling Joseph, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. The Lord entrusts Joseph with the responsibility to direct and to protect his family. It's confirming what we see in the Word of God that the man in this complementarian structure has the responsibility to lead and guide the family into places of safety in obedience to the Word of the Lord. You get the same when it gets to verse number 19 of the same chapter, Matthew 2, 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. The Lord directly speaks to the husband, who is then responsible to do what is right in the things of the Lord. So it's an interesting piece of biblical history. We often learn a lot. We go back to the Old Testament and read of these men of God of old, Noah and Moses and David, and we see their example. Well, no less should we honor and value the example of Joseph here in our New Testament Gospels. We're seeing here, if you like, a man in the in-between, between the Old Testament time and the New Testament time, described though as a just man, walking in integrity. And in his integrity, he gives us a godly example of God's view of morality. In his defense of marriage, we see him acting under the authority when that's appropriate. But also chiefly, we see him leading and directing his family in the things of the Lord. And so for our young men, make sure that you know the way of God, that you know the will of God, and you will determine in your soul to lead your families in the will of God. That you are one who will say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
and we'll do so together. And again, for our wider congregation, pray over these things. Pray for God to help all of our families, that we would see the will of God in these areas, that we would not fight against God's will in any of these areas, that our young people would not pursue sin, that our older folks would not fight in a way that's not honoring in regards to the relationship of family and church and state, and that all of us will seek to do what is right and pleasing in the sight of God in our homes. And the wives, wives understand the will of God in these or these things. You'd not fight against your husband, but rather live in a way that pleases the Lord in all things. So I trust you find that interesting. I think it ties in with what we're looking at in our studies on ethics. And may God help us and direct us in these things and help us to walk in his ways. Any questions or comments? Our time is really gone. I just thought I'd bring this as a, as a kind of message to your hearts today. But any comments or questions? Okay, let's pray and let's fellowship together before we come to worship the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and how it does indeed direct and govern our minds. We thank you for the precepts of the word and also the patterns. Help us, Lord, to submit our hearts to your will as revealed in these various ways. And that we be those who would say, Lord, teach me your ways. Guide me in your paths. Help me to follow the things of righteousness, to walk in integrity and in humility. Oh God, we pray for the grace to want to know and to do the will of God. Oh Lord, may the Spirit of God come upon our homes. May the Lord, may you direct our young people, particularly as they live in this world and be, as they grow up in this world. Help them, oh God, to fight against the temptation to follow this world. That they would see your ways to be the best ways. And they would trust in Christ and live in obedience to the Savior. And so encourage our hearts today. We thank you this time together. May the Spirit of God come upon us shortly as we continue to worship in Christ's precious name. In that name we pray. Amen.